You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. When readers who care about grammar and style write letters to the New Yorker magazine, there's one thing that they complain about more than anything else. Can you guess what it is? Uh, Harvard comma, Oxford comma. No. Um, The two dots over the O. Yes, yes, the diaresis. Diaresis. Yes. Fancy. It's a diacritical mark that's over the vowel, the second of two vowels that are bumping up against each other. So in words like Mm re-elect or reenact or dais or cooperate, so you don't mistake them for cooperate or something like that. I mean, who needs that, right? Well, kind of. The clue is there if you want it. Right. But I'm I'm one of the complainers. I I mean, I haven't written to them, but I would write to them. And we know that it's the most common complaint because of a wonderful new book called Between You and Me, Confessions of a Comma Queen. And this is by Mary Norris, the longtime copy editor at The New Yorker. And she explains why they're still using it. Oh, do tell. Well, she says that uh, her predecessor had a conversation with the style editor at the magazine and said, you know, we really should get rid of this. It looks kind of fussy. Nobody else uses it. And so they had a conversation about it. And the style editor said, You know, I'm on the verge of changing that rule, and I'm going to send out a memo soon. But he died before he could send out the memo. So they just kept doing it. Yes, and and, uh, Mary Norris writes, This was in 1978. No one has had the nerve to raise the subject since. (laughs) Because if you try to remove the diaresis, you're you're going to die. (laughs) You don't want your diaresis removed. It's just vestigial anyway, but yeah. (laughs) Uh, Right. I know. I know. Aren't you on the same page, so to speak, with me, Grant? A a little bit, but I know that the diaresis solves the problem of not having to hyphenate which often Correct. is done in other style guides, where cooperate would be C-O hyphen O-P-E. Yeah, so, so which so also looks fussy and pretentious Well, to me. it looks old-fashioned to me, yeah. um, but there is, particularly given the really casual tone that some New Yorker texts can take, especially on the web-only content, mm-hmm. there's a register mismatch there. There's just a mm-hmm. problem where I've got Andy Borowitz writing stuff, <laughs> right. and they're using the highfalutin style guide from the New Yorker, <laughs> and it just doesn't match. Right. I mean, I guess this is my pet peeve. I just think it's silly. But then I think, well, you know, we always advise people with pet peeves to turn them around and just notice them. Mm-hmm. Do, do your field work and notice where they appear and think of them as a little hello from Martha and Grant. Maybe that's how I should look at, right, there we at go. the uh, diarysis. Yeah, when you have a pet peeve, put a leash on it, give it a name. <laughs> and... <laughs> and get it off the streets and get it neutered so it doesn't breathe, <laughs> right? It doesn't right? Breathe. There we go. <laughs> well, we want to talk with you about any aspect of language, so call us, 877-929-9673. Or you can send emails about words to words at waywardradio.org. And you can find us on Twitter at Wayward, and we're also on Facebook. Hello, you have a way with words. Oh, good morning. My name is Lucy, and I'm calling from San Clemente, California. Hiya, Lucy. What's up? How can we help? Well, um, with all of the sports things that have been going on lately, I am not much of a sports buff, but my husband is. He's an equal opportunity sports listener, and so it's always on in the background. And over the years, I've heard them speak about different seeds, that this team or this person is seated here or there, first, fourth, whatever, in their ranking. And over the years, I just thought that the announcer had bad diction and they were actually saying seat 
like they were seated <laughs> first or fifth. Uh-huh. And <laughs> during March Madness, I actually listened and I asked my husband, I said, are they actually saying seed, like the thing that grows from the ground? And he said, yes, but he had no idea why. And we couldn't figure out where that came from or why they would call it a seed. So we figured we'd ask you. Okay. So S-E-E-D is the word that you're hearing, right? Seed, as in like the seed of a plant. And I was like you. I thought it was S-E-A-T for a long time. Mm, Seed made a little more sense. Like you were, you know, it's kind of like um, an orchestra, like your first chair, like top talent at the front and so forth all the way back. But um, there's two different stories for this. The one that I like best is that (laughs) if you looked at the tree for a tournament, as you Mm -hmm. winnow it down to the best team of each round, like two teams play, um, the winner goes on to the next round, it starts to take the shape of a tree turned sideways. And that even though the seed is at the top of the tree in the branches and it all builds toward the root, it still looks like a tree. And supposedly that's the story. But the other one that I'd heard was, and I don't give much credence to this, is that you spaced them out evenly, just like you would seeds, so that you could see who would prosper the most. Oh, that was that was my sense of it. Yeah. I spent a fair amount of time in the tennis world, and they would talk about seeding the tournament, and you don't want all the good players in yeah. one bracket because they'll just cancel each other out. You want people to buy tickets. Right. So you seed them throughout so that... Oh. Uh, so it's a conscious act. They don't do yeah. seeding randomly. That actually I'm sorry, makes it, more sense. To me. Yeah. yeah, it does to me too. <laughs> but the thing is, there's the evidence early on is that it might have something to do with the, the visual structure of the, the tournament tree. So mm-hmm. there's always a difficulty there. Do I have something written in print that shows that? But I do like that explanation um, because who wants a boring tournament? <laughs> it will exactly. You, you, you want to sell those darn tickets. You can't you have your, seats. your number one and your number two players play each other in the exactly. first round because exactly. then you're losing the excitement right. that's going to come later in the tournament. Right. You don't want Nadal and Djokovic no. in the first round. Absolutely not. Well, I sure appreciate hearing those explanations. Thanks, it Lucy. makes a whole lot of sense All now. Right. Sure thing. Take care. Bye-bye. Say hi to that sports Thank fan you. in the house. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye-bye. We may not know a lot about sports ball, but if you want to <laughs> sports with us, you can call us at 877-929-9673 or email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter, W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. We heard this week from Miranda Fisk, who writes that her grandmother, who was born in 1889 in Birmingham, Alabama, had some colorful sayings that included this one. Might as well go out and let the moon shine down your throat. What does that mean? It's uh, in reference to eating something that doesn't have much taste or flavor. Or um, I did some research on it. It can also mean taking a pill that's not really going to be effective. Mm -hmm. You might as well go outside and let the moon shine down your throat. That was really strange. Yeah. Yeah. Never heard that one either. This is the place for things you haven't heard of or you don't think we've heard of either. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Kitsy Smith from Dallas, Texas. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Um, I was just living in Australia for about two years. Cool. And I, yeah, it was awesome. We were in Sydney. And um, I have a three-year-old, and he was learning the alphabet. And I noticed when he said the end of the alphabet, instead of saying Z, he said Z. Um, and then I also heard people say, like, that there's a bank there called A and Z Bank. It's A and Z. 
And so it kind of dawned on me, they don't say Z, they say Z. And I realized that Australians and the British also say Z. And so I was wondering, how did that come about that they say Z and then we say Z and um, we're all, you know, different? Mm -hmm. Yeah, two countries separated by a common language or three in that case, if you're talking about Australia as well. The interesting thing about Z is that it goes uh, back to the Greek letter Zeta. It's closer to the Greek letter Zeta than our letter Z. So it found its way into English as Z and a lot of dialectal um, uh, variants of that in the British Isles, like Izzard and Uzzard and Zed. And then when all the British settlers came over here, uh, they were all using different versions of that. And good old Noah Webster, who was trying to differentiate the American language from the English language and simplify things, he proposed that we use the letter Z instead of Zed. So it was Noah Webster who got in there and interfered, and this time was successful. He wasn't always successful. No, almost never successful. <laughs> we, we remember his few successes. There's a path in there that I wanted to elaborate on. That's where Old French had it as two different spellings. There was Z-E-D-E with mm-hmm. an accent grave on the first E, so it was Z. Mm-hmm. And then also it became Zay in Old French as well, Z with a, an acute accent on it. And both of these were borrowed into English. So the split happened even before the Mm. pronunciation of this Mm -hmm. letter entered into what we would call modern English. It's really interesting. And now in Canada, there's something interesting that reminds me of what you said about your three-year-old. Apparently up there, uh, according to the journal articles I've read, Canadian children learn the alphabet song as Americans sing it, you know. X, Y, Mm -hmm. and Z. And then there's kind of this ritual of puberty where they're taught to say Z. And this is kind of just they're because they're stuck. They're kind of halfway between American (laughs) English and halfway between British English. Yeah. Today you are a man. (laughs) Now you must say Z. Well, this is what one of the journal articles said. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, I just think they all go through this apparently. Well, most of them. Yeah. It's but, like their initiation into Canadian citizenship, yeah, adulthood. Yeah, and I wonder about Australia, you know, with the American television being everywhere. I know in Canada, so much work has been done on Canadian English. Um, the Z is slowly gaining on Z, and it is considered by many a, a point of pride not to acquire the American Z and stick to the Z. <laughs> it's slowly, slowly, percent by percent, Z is winning out. Mm. Wow, I didn't know there was such a rich history. There's whole big parts of books that are simply about Z versus Z because there's a lot wrapped up. And you've heard Martha talk about it goes back to the Greeks. And then where did the Greeks get it? You know, and the Romans got it from the Greeks. Mm-hmm. And how did the shape of the letter transform itself? And why did when the Romans put it on the end of their alphabet, did it stay there for the next several thousand years? Right. Because wow. the last letter of the Greek alphabet, of course, is not no. Zeta. It's Omega. Mm hmm. And so crazy stuff, crazy, crazy stuff about this one letter and the sounds that it's represented over the years. Yeah. And how it's tied up in our culture. Well, that is really interesting. I'm so glad you all solved that mystery for me. Very good. Glad to help. (laughs) Glad to help. Thank you so much. Take care now. Have a great day. Okay. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Bye, Kitsy. I don't know that there is another letter in the alphabet that has such a great story, but I know there are lots of books oh, about the alphabet. Right, right. I love Letter Perfect by David Sachs. Very he just good. He's, he's passionately in love with all 26 of them. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. And talk to us on Twitter under the handle wayward, W-A-Y-W-O-R-D.
know I missed a portmanteau word that uh, we were sent by Jennifer Batchelder from Chicago. It's the word clopen. Do you know this word? Yeah, it's a close open. Yes. A close open for businesses. Yes. yes. A clopen. If you work the clopen or you work the clopen ship or mm-hmm. you're clopening, then your manager has asked you to work until closing time at 1130 and then maybe come back in at 430 and get the coffee shop right. or the restaurant or whatever, or the retail store ready. Clopening. Those split shifts are terrible. Yes. Right? They are really hard on a person, but they're good for the business. Indeed. Indeed. But some businesses are banning them. I think yeah. Starbucks just started banning them. Yeah. Split shifts are hard because they are kind of speaking for all the time in between the first half of the shift and the last half of the shift. You bet. Right? It's not, not really fair to the employee. Oh, it's awful. Well, the lines are open, not cloaking, <laughs> 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter under the handle W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. And on the line is John Chinesky, our quiz guy. Hello, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. Hi, What's John. up, buddy? Well, I have a little quiz for you. You know, we're going to play another change a letter game. You know, we like to do a thing where we take titles and we change a letter in the titles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I think we go to William Shakespeare just a little too often. So we're going to go with another famous English author, Charles Durkins. I mean, Charles Dickens. Sorry, I changed the letter by accident. Okay. Charles Dickens. I'll change one letter in the title of a Dickens work okay. and then describe the work that Dickens could have written or Durkins could have written. Durkins. For example, a wealthy miser becomes a lot more agreeable when someone gifts him with a substitute for chocolate. A Christmas carob. A Christmas carob. <laughs> Excellent. You're already out of the gate with the example. You've got it. Very good. I get it. Goodness. I get it. Well, here are some other clues. Dickens doesn't just hold a lock on Christmas stories. One of his books is about several children and the hopes they have for receiving candy on Halloween. Treat expectations. Treat expectations is right. Yes, very good. And a more upbeat title in his canon is this tale of a domicile where tired orphans could occasionally and briefly (laughs) take a few minutes off of work. Breakhouse. Breakhouse is right. And what's that change change from? From Bleak House. From Bleak House, yes, just for those who don't know. Uh, His shortest work is just a listing of the garnishes used in cocktails, although he neglected (laughs) to include pearl onions. Yeah. How about Olive's Twist? Olive's Twist, yes, very good. Uh, One novel remains virtually unchanged, except it becomes a dialogue between a pair of characters about their respective hometowns. Yeah, um, a dialogue? A, I was something with a tale of two cities, but what uh-huh, would it yeah, be? I don't even know. A tale no of idea. a talk of two cities? That's it, a talk oh. of two cities. Very good. <laughs> uh, in another serial novel, a small girl helps her father out of debtor's prison by getting a job putting the dots on the eyes at a printer shop. <laughs> Tittle Nell? Uh, no, Tittle Nell. Tittle Nell, <laughs> that works a job in a tittle. No, that Little works. Nell is actually a character in another book, but this is not. Oh. A, this, she's not in the title. Oh, she's not in the book. title. I tittle thought that Dorrit. was good. What was that, Grant? <laughs> tittle Dorrit. <laughs> tittle Dorrit is correct. Yes, very good. Uh, finally, this is the strange story of an ancient piece of footwear that killed the cat. Curiosity shoe. Right, the old curiosity shoe. Very oh, yeah, good. right. Okay. All right. Nice work, guys. You did fantastic. Thanks a bunch, John. Thank you, guys. Take care. Talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks, John.
If you've got questions about language, this is the place, 877-929-9673, or email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi there. Hi, who's this? This is Savannah Sterrett calling from Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the show. What can we do for you, Savannah? Well, I have a question um, that I heard in a home video that my mom recently wanted me to watch. Um, it was an interview of my great-grandma Singleton, um, who was from Travis Peak, Texas, which is in the rural hill country in central Texas, um, where my mom grew up. And uh, in the film, they uh, the interviewer was basically just asking my great-grandma questions about life in the past and growing up without electricity, courting in her days, etc. Nice. Um, but at one point in the video, she referred to a male relative as being someone's old scratch. Um, she kind of laughed after that and, and kind of embarrassed and asked the person filming if they were going to include that clip in the film. Um, she seemed like she thought she had said more than she ought to or, <laughs> or something she shouldn't have. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah. So I never heard this phrase before. Um, I asked my mom and if she knew what it meant, um, and she thought it meant something like the devil, uh-huh. but she didn't know um, what the reference was or where it had come from. Uh, so we were both a little stumped. Was the person she was talking about a rascal? She kind of insinuated that. She didn't really give any background story, um, but but yeah, that was kind of the vibe. And Savannah, was your great-grandma... Um conservative or really religious? Yes, yes. She grew up um, Church of Christ, which is pretty um, pretty conservative, uh-huh. at least. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, I think maybe she felt a little embarrassed about what she had said. But she she also had a really good sense of humor. Like, she, she was kind of irreverent sometimes, even though the people in her community were probably not so much. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, Old Scratch does mean the devil or Satan. It's, it's sort of a euphemism for that old guy. Mm-hmm. It comes from an old Norse term that means goblin or something like that. Uh-huh. But I'm curious, cool. you said she was referring to someone as somebody else's Old Scratch? Like a devil belonging to somebody? It was a male relative who mm-hmm. she was talking about, and she was talking about him in reference to either his wife or someone that he was dating. Mm-hmm. I think it was his wife. Okay. Um, so I don't know. Maybe she was referring to their the relationship between them, or uh-huh. maybe he was did things he shouldn't have. I don't know. Uh huh. Yeah, that's that sounds right. As Grant suggested, maybe a rascal. Mm-hmm. Or, or I was thinking of my guy. a guy who might be stepping out on his wife or oh, something like that. Oh, hmm. I mean, to, to get the devil oh, in you, that sort things. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that would explain <laughs> things. Well, there's another interesting <laughs> thing happening here. That's the case. I'm I'm fascinated by your great grandmother wondering if that would be taken out of the video, because there has long been an injunction, so to speak, against saying the name of the devil at risk that he might appear. So if you mention the devil, historically the superstition was there was a chance then he would enter your life. Well, and sure. Speak part- of the devil. Right. Exactly. This is part oh. of the reason why we have the all of these nicknames and euphemisms for the devil, like Old Ned and... Uh, old Billy. Old, old Billy. Boy. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of these. Um, old Harry. Old Harry, yeah. So maybe she was speaking from a little bit of superstition almost, like like knock on wood or something like something that. Like, well, right. Could have been that too. Yeah, and, and I'm not to say that she understood 
the superstition is something that she believed, but just like we might say knock on wood but not have any of the superstition left in us. Just a habit mm-hmm. to try to not just mention the devil at all. Savannah, uh-huh. th- that video sounds like a real treasure. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, she was really funny. I mean, I remember her from when I was little, but oh, it was didn't... really cool to sit down and watch the video and hear her as an adult. Yeah, that's really cool. Outstanding. I, I should do that, right? What? Tape, tape, tape my older relatives. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Everybody should be taping their older we have relatives. It, we have it in our pockets. It's oh in our phones, gosh, right? Yes. Any one of us could do that right That's now. That's right. That's right. Those Amazing. linguistic heirlooms. Savannah, I want to thank you for sharing a little bit of your family with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All okay. Right, take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, yeah. What a treasure. Right. Here, here's your assignment. When you're done listening to the radio show, get out your cell phone, find the oldest relative who's near you, and record a few minutes saying, what was it like when you were a child? And see what happens. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn some stuff. And then, if you have any linguistic stuff come up, some slang or old words or old sayings or things that you didn't understand, then you call us right. and we'll help you figure it out. Right. I mean, Savannah was talking about her great-grandma talking about courting and what it was like to live without electricity, all those kinds of right. things. Right. Courting. Who goes courting those, anymore? I know. I know. <laughs> ask those leading questions yeah. about births and deaths <laughs> and sickness and work and all those things. And then share it with us. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Grant, I did not know until yesterday what a bonspiel is. Bonspiel. Is that German? What is that? Maybe from Dutch. We're not sure, but it's B-O-N-S-P-I-E-L. Is spiel related to words or uh, like a spiel? No? A spiel meaning game in, in German. Uh, um, and it And it's a word for a curling match. The kind with the ice and the stones and the brooms, yeah, that yeah, thing? And the, yeah, and yeah, the, the sweeping the ice. I don't understand yeah. it, but it's yeah. fascinating to watch. <laughs> Out of all the sports thing, that may be the weirdest sports thing I have ever seen. Right, right. Bonspiel. Bonspiel. Right. Bonspiel. Accent on the first syllable. Yeah, we're getting together for a bonspiel. Not a bonfire, <laughs> but bonspiel. On the beach with hot dogs yeah. and marshmallows. Hmm. 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Connie. I'm calling from Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Connie. What can we do for you? Well, I have sort of a multi-part question about something that I've noticed. Um, My husband and I have a 22-year-old daughter and a 20-year-old son. A few years ago, when listening to our kids speaking with their friends, I noticed that they use this phrase, I feel like, constantly. And the reason it really sort of stuck out to me is that most of the time they would use it when they're really not talking about a feeling situation at all. And when, in fact, it might have been more accurate or appropriate to say, I think, or I suppose, or it seems to me, but instead they always just use this default phrase, Mm -hmm. I feel like. And sometimes it was tacked onto the beginning of a sentence that it didn't even need to be, almost like a verbal tick. So what I started wondering is, number one, is this really a new phenomenon in speech, or has it been there all the time? And I'm just now noticing it. But I also wondered, is it just a young person thing? But um, I listen to a tremendous amount of audio content. For the last 10 years, I've been going legally blind, and so now I no longer really interact with print at all. So my, my interaction with language is all auditory, and I hear it. It's ubiquitous. I listen to a tremendous number of podcasts. It's been interesting because it's almost been my own little social experiment. I want to find out how many people are saying this. It seems there's a tendency often in our language to be 
so nice and so accommodating that it seems like we use a lot of softening phrases. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'm wondering if it's being used as one of those softening phrases, you know, sort of those social lubricants that we all use so that we don't seem too strident or as if we're asserting ourselves too strongly. Mm -hmm. I don't love it because... To me, it smacks a little bit of sloppy speech. I think the language is so vibrant and diverse, they could use something that's more accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, now that we live in an age where we can all just listen to 12 podcasts in a row on our iPhone and where kids use social media and young adults, you know, became so high usage in social media before a lot of their parents did, I'm wondering if this is one of those language things that has gone from teens and moved up and is now in heavy usage among adults. There's a lot to be said here. You are asking some great questions. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you think. You have a lovely voice to boot. Yes. Um, I would love to have an hour or two to talk to you about what it is like to go legally blind, but... I wonder if listening to that much audio has given us the answer to your first question. Are you suffering from the recency illusion? That's what, you're, that's what right. we call it. And I think that you are a little bit, but not by much. It's certainly been noticed, the I feel versus the I think thing, for at least 15 years, and it's probably gone back further than that. Mm. Um, there are any number of places where you can find people asking a question about this from years ago, it being answered. Um, So, yeah, I think a little bit of what you're hearing is just because you're listening to people who are talking in a dialogue format where they are expected, to answer your other question, to provide some social lubricant so they don't come off as blunt or brusque. Right. And, And we do use that. Fortunately, I have an answer for you on a little bit of this that you didn't quite ask. There was a study done by some people at Stanford University a few years ago. Um, It's really, really interesting stuff. Zachary Tamala and Nicole Meyer um, talked to some people in this study, and they used a phrase like, I feel like I should donate blood versus I think I should donate blood. And, mm. and they used other examples as well and found that if you prefaced a sentence with I feel versus I think, it was received differently, even though all other factors were equal. And people were more willing to listen to you if they themselves tended to be emotionally responsive or considered themselves or were noticed to be emotionally interactive people. Whereas people who were cognitively oriented, that is, they were more interested in hard facts and thinking processes and working through to a solution, they were more likely to respond to, I think, I should donate blood. It was really interesting. I'm, I'm probably short-circuiting this whole study, but that is all to say there is a difference between these, and I feel does open the door to other people having a difference of opinion with you without either one of you feeling like you're being confronted. Okay. That's fascinating. Uh, and, and, you know, one thing, Grant, that was kind of interesting to me, I've, I started wondering if maybe as women we are sometimes more likely to use those softening things, especially like a woman in a boardroom situation mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say in all of the various um, NPR programs and Slate programs and just all the podcasts and whatnot that I listen to, it seems to me, and of course, this is a small study. It's just basically Connie's listening habits. But I, it seems ubiquitous among men as well. I have yes. not noticed that it's in higher usage among women. It, uh, in sociolinguistics, though, young women tend to be the innovators and tend to spread new speech habits out to the larger communities of older people and to, to men. Um, really? Yes, they do. I mean, it's not like it's, um, you know, a 90-10 thing split on that, but they are more likely to show 
um, new language habits before any other group, young women. And so I'm not surprised. The other thing I think we need to say here is that there are a number of different kind of conflict resolution um, strategies that are taught both in private therapy, group therapy, in work situations, in um, professional development, in any kind of diplomatic circles that use language very much like the I feel like you are saying X, but I think we need to talk about Y. There's all these very specific constructions that are offered as linguistic tools to get you to a point of uh, resolution. And it's really interesting how much this reminds me of that, just this kind of a natural paving, smoothing the road to get to a good end goal. Well, it's interesting because... I, on the other hand, know that I do that a lot, and I'm trying to train myself not to do it. Because you feel that you're being shorted or slighted or people don't take you seriously? Yes. I'll use all kinds of softening language, and I often realize that I don't need it. Mm -hmm. You know, I have friends who will say, um, instead of, I feel like we should do this, people will say, the truth is we should do that. Uh, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm trying to use that kind of language because I do think that sometimes you can get passed over. That's so interesting that you bring that up. That's something I've really thought about a good bit, probably especially more with our daughter, Vice, our son, um, mainly because, I mean, goodness, you know that, um, what's her name, Cheryl Sandberg, Sandberg, you know, the lean-in mm-hmm. author. Mm-hmm. And recently I think she and a gentleman from the Wharton School release some information about how women are treated so much differently. Their communication style is looked at very differently in a boardroom situation. And they were talking about how many times women are cut off very quickly when they begin speaking and how a woman speaking the exact same number of words in a setting as a man, she's considered being like as if she's speaking too much, as if she's Mm -hmm. being strident, whereas a man would not. And so I, I have, and of course, you know, I feel totally like I can get pedantic and corrective with my own children. I never would with their friends. But with my daughter especially, I've said, you know, I think it's it's more powerful speech. Don't couch everything in feelings mm-hmm. because I do worry that as women, that's how we can be perceived. I completely in the world. agree. But the other thing is to understand that sometimes when I feel is being said, I think is being meant. And Mm -hmm. so just talking, using the word feel doesn't mean that you're talking about feelings. I just want to um, wrap this up, Connie, and and say um, I really recommend that you look up the Stanford uh, Business Review. They have this study by Zachary Tromala and Nicole Meyer about I think versus I feel. Basically, if you just look for Tromala, I think, I feel, you'll come up with it on the Internet. It's totally a really good read. They've kind of laid out some of the differences here in the way people perceive people, other people who use I think feel versus I think, okay? Oh, I love that. I, I want to do a deep dive on this. Who knows why, but it's very fascinating to me. <laughs> Give us a call again sometime, Connie, all right? Thank you so much. Take care now. All right. Bye-bye. bye-bye. You have a great day. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673 is the number for you to call to talk about language or send us an email. That address is words at waywardradio.org. A couple of weeks ago on the show, I shared a quotation from Terry Pratchett, the late author. He's so quotable. I have to share a couple more. Fantasy is an exercise bicycle for the mind. It might not take you anywhere, but it tones up the muscles that can. Oh, nice. Isn't that Very nice? good. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody who appreciates fantasy novels. The and value kind of, of thing, writing right? for yourself. Right. 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 And, and there's all this research now that shows that people have more empathy if they read fiction and that kind of thing. Mm, right. Interesting. Yeah. I, I got to share one more okay. with you. 
The entire universe has been neatly divided into things to A, mate with, B, eat, C, run away from, and D, rocks. Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> the more I hike in California, the more I tend to agree with that. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. In our Facebook group, Stanley Anderson from Orange County, California, has been posting what he calls limerizations. 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 This is where he takes a well-known literary passage or speech, and then he translates it into limerick format, which is a really hard thing to do. I bet. If you think about it, they're recognizable and pretty wonderful, I have to say. For example, here's his uh, rendering of Hamlet's To Be or Not To Be speech in limerick form. There once was a question of being, or not, as I'm presently seeing. Is't nobler to bear, oh, a fortune of arrows and slings in outrageous fleeing? Okay, that kind of That's works. That's pretty brilliant, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. I think it works really well. How about this one? See if you can guess what okay. this one is from. And he usually starts out with the, there once was a blah, mm-hmm. blah, okay. There once was acknowledged a fact Universally, single men packed with good fortune must be, if yet maritally free, in great want of the wife that they lacked. <laughs> I don't know what Isn't it is. Isn't that wonderful? It's I don't the know what it is. It's pride and prejudice. Oh, it's nice. It's a truth universally acknowledged. <laughs> I think these are great. And he was asking for more people to chime in with their own versions of, uh, of limerizations. And this is Stanley? Stanley Anderson from Orange, Orange County. County, California. You want to hear one more? Yeah. And this one, he uses the word tro, T-R-O-W, which means to think or believe. So see if you can guess what this is. There once was a time years ago, about fourscore and seven, I trow, when our forefathers brought to this continent's lot a new nation conceived in the know. Wow, it's fresh in the mind. Yeah, the Gettysburg address. Right, right. Yeah. But try it. I was trying to do <laughs> Juliet's the, speech from the balcony, and, and I just... Somehow the gravity is lost from Lincoln's speech, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the cleverness is there, the enjambment, and, and I, I just think it's terrific. How far did you get on Juliet's speech from the balcony? Not not far. There once was a maid on a. I mean, what do you Balcony, say? Balcony, <laughs> yeah. who wasn't very much of a phony. <laughs> right. She looked down at her bow and she said, "Well, dost thou marry me tomorrow, or shall we die by stoning?" I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. And you've provided me the opportunity to mention that that was the original pronunciation in English of balcony. Yeah, was I use that all the time when people talk about, "Oh, language changing. It's terrible." Right. I'm like, "All right. Well, right. what do you call that thing?" Balcony borrowed from Italian. Yes, indeed. Well, if you want to find more limerizations of classic passages from classic works, find our Facebook. Facebook group, Away With Words, just look for it. Or you can send yours, if you've come up with a few, to us an email to words at waywardradio.org. And by all means, give us a call and recite them in full flower, 877-929-9673. Hello, you have Away With Words. Uh, hello, this is uh, Stuart in Minneapolis. Hey, Stuart, welcome to the show. What's up? Thank you. Thanks to streaming Wisconsin Public Radio, I listen to your program every Sunday morning. I listened with uh, someone who I refer to as the D.C., and it's mutual. Uh, What's the D.C.? The dear... Darling Companion from the Loving Spoonful song. Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) Alternately, the L.I. 
love interest. <laughs> okay. And your SL. So, so we listen to you on Sunday morning, but Saturday night and Sunday nights, Wisconsin Public Radio has three hours streaming for us of old-time radio. Nice. And the God's honest truth that a lot of the old-time radio for me once was new-time radio. <laughs> a lot of these stories are based in the largest city in California. And the time frame, these, these broadcasts come from late 30s to, like, early 50s, and that city is more often than not are almost always pronounced as Los Angeles. Los Angeles. And um, we just started wondering uh, when, it, when it started becoming Los Angeles. You make it sound so simple with your short question, but it's a really long answer, and I'm going to lay it out for you in about 30 seconds. Can you, can you take it? Yeah. Okay, here it is. Los Angeles was founded by Spanish speakers, but somewhere along the way it lost its, its kind of Hispanic heritage and became very, very Anglo. And most of the, the Hispanic stuff happening in Los Angeles today is actually new, relatively new. There's this whole kind of middle period where even people with Latino last names spoke English and no Spanish whatsoever. And you find this throughout the city and actually throughout much of Southern California, many, 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 many place names are not pronounced as they would be in Spanish because that pronunciation was lost. Los Angeles is a great example of that, where um, you had Anglophones coming in from all over the country, pouring into California, reinforcing kind of this lost of this, uh, bringing their own pronunciations with them and overlaying on top of what was already there kind of misunderstandings of how these place names should be pronounced. Los Angeles, um, I think I've counted 17 different pronunciations in one, in one, in one source. Wow. Seven, yeah. And the, is it Los? Is it Los? Is it oh, Los? Mm-hmm. Is it Angeles? 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 Is it um, Angeles? Or is it Angeles? Yeah, Angeles? I've heard those. Yeah, on the radio. Yeah. Definitely. So I'm going to point you to a resource that really lays this out perfectly. He did a better job in print than I can do on the air. There was a writer by the name of Steve Harvey, not the Steve Harvey, who wrote a story in 2011 for the Los Angeles Times. It's called Devil of a Time with City of Angels Name. Okay, so look for that. Steve Harvey in the Los Angeles Times. And he talks about this whole history where they had they convened committees and they they had public campaigns and they had marketing and they're like how are we going to pronounce this and they took a vote and they talked to their most respected experts and their their most famous citizens and and then all for naught people still pronounce it any way they want <laughs> and so right now i think there are three major pronunciations of los angeles and the best thing ever the reason with la is the most common name for the city is because of the pronunciation problem with the name I mean, this is the theory, that people sought something really simple because the other alternative was too difficult, and they just say L.A. instead. Claro. Muy bueno. Talk. <laughs> so anyway, look, look for that article in the Los Angeles Times. He's really done a good job. There's a lot of history in there, some funny moments, even mayors getting it wrong, you know, or politicians who, who show up into town and they're like, you know, they're trying to seem like a local and they just mess it up. Well, thank you, and I'll be listening um, next week, and I will be listening for the variations on the theme on the radio. Outstanding. Okay. Thank you so much for your yeah. call, Stuart. Hi, okay. t- yep. hi to your Bye. D.C. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. 
I remember moving to San Diego uh, about five or six years ago. Yeah. And places that seemed perfectly like V-I-S-T-A. Yeah. Looks like it should be Vista, you know? Oh. But it's Vista. Oh, see, I'm always thinking of the Latvian word for chicken, oh, which yeah. is Vista. <laughs> we have talked about this on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and La Jolla is the famous one, though. Oh, right. Yeah. But that one I knew from afar. That one's so well known. It's it's nationally known. Yeah. It's a mess, isn't it? Take the El Camino Real. It's not San Diego. It's San Diego. No, you would never do that. <laughs> San Diego. <laughs> San Diego, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. And talk to us on Twitter, W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Here's another wonderful limerization written by Stanley Anderson. He posted this on our Facebook group. See if you can guess what it is. Okay. There once was a lady who's sure all that glitters is golden and pure. There's a stairway that heads up to heaven, it said, and the cost of the thing she'll incur. <laughs> it's brilliant, right? <laughs> is that stairway to heaven? Of course the, it is. In limerick book. form. <laughs> I don't the guitar riffs are gonna be really hard to work <laughs> right? out for that. <laughs> 877-929-9673, Twitter, W-A-Y-W-O-R-D, or find us on Facebook. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Dorothy. I'm calling from Fort Worth, Texas. I'm originally from Glasgow, Scotland. Ah, well, welcome to the show. Thank you. I've enjoyed it for a long while. <laughs> <laughs> and finally finally called in. <laughs> We're glad you did, Dorothy. Um, How can we help? Um as I said, I grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. I've lived in Texas for 44 years. But I grew up seeing a lot of things, um, phrases, things that I just said, never knowing where they came from, never questioning where they came from uh, until I've lived here. And uh, I wondered if you would be able to tell me, you know, where where they did come from, Um one of them is like, I mean, I know what they are, I know what they mean, but I don't know where they originated. Um, one of the things that I say as an exclamation is, in the name of the wee man. And another one is, somebody is, you call somebody a blethering skite. That means they talk a lot. We'll hook you up with some answers, and I'm going to give you a great resource after this for some Scots language, all right? All right. So let's take that these. That would be great. One at a time, oh, a wee man, um, in the name of the wee man, is a minced oath where you're referring to the devil. It's in the name of the devil. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. another term oh. for the devil is the wee man. Oh, I and, thought it was baby Jesus. Really? No, yeah, and in the, <laughs> no, according to what I've read, and there's a number of uh, euphemisms. And well, in Scots, apparently, you can say in the name of anything and make it sound like an oath. You can say in the name of this coffee, I'm not going to work today, or or whatever. The Scots has got I never this... heard that one. So well, I made that one up, but it's just in the name of whatever. You can say. Oh, you mean I should stop calling my grandson the wee man? No, babe? that's a different wee man. No, that's the thing. It's it's a different wee man. You've got two meanings of it. the wee oh, man is the the little guy, and then he's also the devil. But maybe he's both. I don't know. No, 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 no. He's a sweetie. He's perfect. <laughs> He's perfect. I'm sure he is. Now, a blathering skite, if there's anything more Scots in the world, I don't know what it is. A skite is a rascal or a scoundrel of some kind. And to blather is to talk incessantly or loquaciously. 
And in um, in the United you know, States, we actually have blathers, blatherskite. We say it with an ah instead of an eh, mm-hmm. blatherskite. I've heard that. We have I've heard here, that he is blathering. Yes, exactly. We've we caught it um, very soundly during the American Revolution from a song that was really common among the soldiers called Maggie Louder, and it's got the word in it, and it's been strung in the United States ever since. It's really interesting. Oh. But other outside of blatherskite, most Americans wouldn't say to blather, and definitely would not use the word skite. It's just not really. Any no, part of the vernacular. No, here. most people are. Um, yes, most people are um, confounded when I say blathering sky. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's there it all is in a nutshell. But let me tell you uh, my secret source for all things Scots language, and I, and I'm mentioning this to everyone because a few years ago they had some funding problems. I, I threw in my my few few dollars, and some others did too, and it's now going quite soundly. And this is the dictionary of the Scots language, which is free online. It has a newly designed interface. Um, it's by Scots for Scots with lots of Scots content. It combines all of the great lexical works of the Scots language all into one resource. And you can look up just about anything that you can think of. And it's probably in there with citations and historical information and notes on usage. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. You've really helped. Oh, yeah. Glad she to says do it. with a tone of surprise. <laughs> <laughs> the Brother yes, Scots came through. <laughs> Thanks, Dorothy. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 No matter where you're from in the world, if you've come to the United States, you've brought linguistic baggage. Would you like to open that up so we can all go through your laundry together? <laughs> 877-929-9673 or words at wayywordradio.org. I came across a German expression the other day that means uh, I almost lost my temper or, or I became outraged. And it literally translates as, I almost jumped in triangles. <laughs> What's it in German? I knew you were going to ask me that. Ich bin fast im gesprungen. Gesprungen. Yeah, I Just almost jumped jump. in triangles. It means to become outraged. Nice, I almost jumped in triangles. Why? I don't know. Me neither. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Cynthia from San Diego. Hi, Cynthia. Welcome to the show. What's going Thank on? Thank you. I have um, a word that has been used by my grandmother, and she's from northeastern Missouri. Mm. And she always would say to us whenever we were getting dressed to go outside or do anything outside, she'd say, well, you better take your jacket or you're going to freeze your tea Alberta. And we just looked at her and thought, oh, Grandma. <laughs> but tea Alberta is a word that I find myself using now as I've gotten older with my kids. And anyway, I'm just wondering where did it come from? And my dear sweet husband said, you know, you can look that up online. And I said, no, I'm going to call away with words and see what they have to say. So T.L. Alberta, is it, am I saying it yes, correctly? How, do you, exactly. how, how would you spell that if you had to put that on paper? I have tried to write it before, and I just put T, and then I think T-E-E-L-L-A-B-E-R-T-A, okay. just really sounding it out, you know. Yeah, that's what and, I would do. And what is your T.L. Alberta? You said you, <laughs> said you would freeze it. What What is it? Uh, I think it's your derriere. I think that's how she meant it to be, but um, it was always very playful. But what's interesting is her two daughters, my mom and her sister, never said it. So I don't think it was something that they liked, or it must be really old-fashioned or something. Huh. I can't honestly say I've heard anybody else say it. Have you 
ever no, heard any? No, never have. And it doesn't come up in any of the standard reference works either. No. There's, there's some slightly similar ones mm-hmm. in the Dictionary of American Regional English. Mm-hmm. These are T. Heine mm-hmm. and T. Heine Boo. T. Heine Boo. And... There's oh one more with a tea something else. Tea hinder. Tea hinder, yeah. Yeah, you're going to freeze your tea hinder off. But they're <laughs> also, so I might be kind of misestimating here, but uh, there might be uh, several hundred words for the thing that you sit on. And actually in the Dictionary of American Regional English, when they put it together, one of the questions that field workers asked was basically, what's a funny name for the thing that you sit upon? <laughs> And, and we're not talking chair, <laughs> no, right? They mean on your your behind, your, your bum, your bottom, your posterior. Yeah, your TL Alberta. Your, yeah, your BTM wow. is one that I thought was amusing. BTM. Yeah, so it's kind of a fake acronym of bottom BTM. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> See, I wonder where the T comes in, though. I mean, wonder why it would start with a T. Good question. I I don't know, but the nice thing about this radio show, Cynthia, is that we have so many listeners that if there is. Even a oh. one small pocket of people in North America who use this term, we're probably going to hear from them. Oh, will... I would love that. Yeah. No you, promises, you though. Emails. If you do, how will I know? I'd like to know if anyone <laughs> else has a grandmother who's we'll, ever said it. We'll talk <laughs> about it on the listening. show. We'll put it on social media. It'll show up in all the usual channels, all right? Oh, that's great news. Oh, well, So it's actually just the bottom, like I suspected. Yeah. I thought maybe it was your whole you know, area of your body counting top and bottom, and T. Alberta maybe was a reference to, you know, T and A, not to get vulgar, but... Maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, hmm. I'm looking at this thinking it could maybe be like um, an exaggerated form of TLB something, but I can't think of what TLB <laughs> would stand for. Yeah, tomato, lettuce, and bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Well, we're going to find out. We're, our listeners are going to get off their T. Alberta's and give us a call, oh, I hope. Oh, how great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, okay, Cynthia. So Bye-bye. Keep listening, all right? I, I sure will. Thanks. Nice okay. To you. Bye-bye. Well, if you know what T. Alberta is, I mean, we know what it is, but if yeah. you use it or someone you know has used it, if you've got a clue about it, clue us in, too. Hit us with a clue by four at 877-929-9673 <laughs> or send in an email to words at waywardradio.org. Things have come to a pretty pass. That's all for today's broadcast, but don't wait till next week to chat with us. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, or SoundCloud. Check out our website, too, at waywardradio.org, where you'll find a dictionary, a newsletter, mobile apps, and a discussion forum. And you can listen to hundreds of past episodes for free. You can also leave us a message anytime, day or night, at 877-929-9673. Share your family's stories about language, or ask us to resolve language disputes at work, home, or in school. You can also email us. That address is words at waywardradio.org. Our senior producer is Stephanie Levine. The show is directed and edited this week by Tim Felton. We have production help from James Ramsey and Tamar Wittenberg. Away With Words is independently produced and distributed by Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who believe in lifelong learning and better human communication. The show is coming to you from the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, California. Thanks for listening. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. Bye-bye. So long. Like tomato, potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the